All right, so the message for today, uh, we will start with Matthew 6, 22 through 24. It says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is the darkness. Now we're going to ask a lot of questions today, some about this scripture and some about things related to it. But don't feel like we have to answer all of these questions. So what does it mean to follow Christ? What is the significance of the cross? What really happens when we take communion? What is the function of baptism? And what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Here on Pentecost Sunday, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? These are questions for which Christians have spent thousands of years seeking answers. Countless theologians have spent their entire lives poring over the scriptures and discerning what we should do and what we should believe in light of these ideas, in light of these questions. The interesting thing is that these dedicated disciples have not all come to the same conclusions. Take St. Francis of Assisi, one of the most venerated of Christians. Few would say that he wasn't a man of God. But legend has it that he preached the gospel to birds. And he drafted a peace treaty between a town and a wolf that was devouring people and livestock in that town. Sounds really strange. But most people don't doubt that he was a true follower of Christ. He's a saint. Or take Ezekiel, the great prophet of the Old Testament. His contribution to the Bible begins with this fantastical vision that reads more like science fiction than typical scripture. Ezekiel 1, 15 through 18 says this. Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they moved, they went toward any one of four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, they were so high that they were awesome, and their rims were full of eyes all around the four of them. I don't know about you, but this is so far from my experience of God that it almost doesn't even make sense. 
Still, this man was absolutely instrumental in guiding the people of God through some of the hardest times in their history. The list of strange ideas and experiences from devoted Christians is longer than we could begin to comprehend. Why would a people who follow a single God, who grow from the same tradition, who partake of the same practices, come to such different conclusions about what following God looks like? Why would we experience the one true God so differently? This is what we'll try to explore today. So back to the verse that we started with. What does it mean to have a single eye? Why does Jesus imply that the opposite of a single eye is not, he doesn't say it's a multiple eye, he terms it an evil eye. And in what way does the eye fill the body with its own nature? There's something mysterious going on here. So there, there are a few widely accepted interpretations of this, and the ones that make the most sense to me have to do with perspective. Also, to understand what Jesus is getting at here, it's very important that we place this scripture in the context of the preceding ideas. This is a general rule for how to understand scripture. You want to put things in context. It helps a lot. So before we go any further, let's look at the few verses that come before the one we started with. So leading up to this, Jesus is talking about the proper way to engage in spiritual practices. He says that we should love prayer and fasting and giving for the sake of the pure goodness it produces in the world and in us. He warns us that if we practice these things in front of other people, to be seen by those people, that our reward is from those people and not from God. In other words, a transformative spiritual practice becomes a mere physical chore akin to taking out the trash if our focus is misplaced. He then goes on to make a more general statement. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here we have another statement that isn't exactly clear in meaning. This gives us more questions, like, what exactly does Jesus mean by treasures? And what does he have in mind when he talks about heaven? We'll not attempt to give precise answers to those questions today, because as you'll see, it would actually be a mistake to do so. One thing that is clear, though, is the idea that whatever we give attention to is the thing that will form our soul. 
which leads us back to the idea of perspective. The lamp of the body is the eye. That's what we give attention with. So it seems that Jesus is trying to tell us three things. That the kingdom of heaven is where the real treasure is, whatever treasure means. That therefore our direction should be towards the kingdom of heaven, whatever heaven means. And that we aim at things by paying attention to them. Now, we shouldn't assume here that Jesus is talking about paying attention with our physical eyes. Although this idea works at that level, too. Um, Jesus had a way of making statements that are true on just about every level of analysis you could possibly come up with. It seems that he's talking about some other kind of seeing, some other kind of vision. The eye here represents either the mind or the spirit, or perhaps both. I'll refer to the seeing of the mind as reason, and to the seeing of the spirit as faith. First, let's talk about the seeing of the mind, reason, and what exactly that entails. The challenges to reason are likely more than we would tend to expect. So, in a book called To, to, Be Known as, to Know as We Are Known by Parker J. Palmer, um, he says that objectivism, that's viewing things objectively, Objectivism begins by assuming a sharp distinction between the knower and the objects to be known. So there's a famous physicist and computer scientist named Stephen Wolfram who's contributed some amazing things to both fields, to computation and to physics. In his 2002 masterwork, A New Kind of Science, he put forth an idea he had been developing for years called computational irreducibility. So you have computation, it's what you're doing when you do math, irreducibility, not reducible. So his exploration was more technical than we'll get into today, but the idea is this. Computational irreducibility exists when a system is so complex that no simplified system can represent it accurately. In other words, there's no shortcut to predicting what the system will do in the future. So some examples of this are weather patterns, for instance. We have some of the world's most powerful supercomputers that model weather and I'm sure you've noticed just as well as I have that they're somewhat accurate for the next couple of days. But beyond that, it's too big of a system. We can't, we can't find a good shortcut. The only way to know exactly what's going to happen is to watch it and let it play out. So another example would be viral evolution. So 
we can say, okay, uh, with these particular pressures, probably the way that this virus will evolve is like this or like this. Not sure when, not sure how quickly, and we can get a decent idea. But again, the only way to know for sure is to just let it play out. So there are more computationally irreducible systems in the universe than we could possibly imagine. We might be tempted to think that because we have come to do science so well, we have just about everything figured out. We have fantastic models of quantum wave functions that enable us to create everything from nuclear reactors to consumer electronics. We also have a fantastic model of gravity that allows us to collect photons from the other side of the universe and use them to construct models of galaxies that may have died out millions of years ago. We also use Einstein's theory of gravity in more practical ways. Take GPS, for instance. Without his theory, GPS wouldn't be able to get you to the other side of town, much less to California or Canada. However, this is incredibly misleading. All of our prediction and understanding, as amazing as it might be, represents the smallest fraction of the systems that are all around us. Nearly everything in the universe is computationally irreducible. And all of our human achievement, all of our powerful science lives in tiny, narrow pockets of experience where there are shortcuts to be found. To put this into perspective, there's a famous problem in science called the three-body problem. Imagine you have a system of three planets and their gravity causes them to orbit one another with no single planet at the center. So you can picture these three objects, their gravities causing motion in the other ones. Even this system with only three objects is what scientists call a chaotic system. It's just a fancy term for a system that we can't predict the behavior of very far into the future. It's three things. So what does all of this mean for our ability to see with the mind? When we reason, what we are really doing is picking out a tiny piece of the universe that we can explain with a shortcut and using that shortcut to make decisions that are good enough for our particular situation. As we've seen, we can do amazing things within these small slices of reality, but Jesus' warning should be echoing in our minds when we are tempted to rely on reason alone. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. If our treasure is all contained within these tiny slices of reality, then our hearts will be imprisoned there as well. Thankfully, we're given an alternative a means by which we can give attention to the vastness of existence that we cannot ever hope to fully understand. This is where the kingdom of the heavens waits for us, always at hand, always ready to reveal itself when our perspective shifts from the seeing of the mind to the seeing of the spirit. 
from the narrow focus of reason to the expansive engagement called faith. So what is faith? Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without it, it is impossible to please God because he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we can pick up a partial definition here. Faith involves believing that God exists and believing that he rewards people who seek him with sincerity. put it in terms that we've been using so far, faith involves looking into the vast unknown, into the irreducible and eternal, and trusting that it is good. The question then becomes, why should we believe that? And that's a really good question. Essentially, this is the question that's the dividing line between science and religion. Now, whether it's a line that exists in any real sense is something for another day. But a hard-nosed scientist might say, if we can't prove it, if we can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Jesus tells us differently, store up your treasures in heaven. Jesus' perspective is that the things that we cannot prove are actually more valuable than the things that we can prove. Parker J. Palmer, speaking of the way that people viewed the world prior to the scientific revolution, says, The untrained mind of pre-modern times did not rely on factual observations and logical analysis, but on the subjective faculties, emotion, intuition, and faith. These modes of knowing do not manufacture a world to be held at arm's length, manipulated and owned. Instead, they receive the world as a given, an organic whole, and they make the knower an integral part of it. Such knowledge does not reduce the world to lifeless things, but fills all things with vital, pulsing life. In such a world, the very rocks have souls. Flowers and trees have spirit selves. The events of daily life are filled with symbols and signs. The whole experience is pregnant with portent and meaning, and the knower is interwoven with it all. This is what the world of faith looks like. This is the arena in which visions like those of Ezekiel manifest themselves. This is where St. Francis liked to hang out. And this is the kingdom in which we so desperately need to spend more time. If we are to live the full life that Jesus came to offer us, we can't continue to neglect the mystery of God. We have to realize that there is limited value in favoring a sermon that makes sense. When we do not understand, it should excite us that there is a crucial part of existence that is not under our control. 
Not only that, when we see those dimly lit images, our first reaction should be, I'm not sure what that is or what it means, but behind it all, something good is happening. Now, this sounds fairly simple in theory, but in practice, it can be much more difficult. Are we really ready to see someone close to us die unexpectedly and respond with, I will miss them terribly and I will mourn with my family, but I will also rejoice that there is a greater good churning beneath this sorrow? Are we ready to be wronged by a person in the congregation and respond with, I'm hurt, but I know that we are all mysterious even to ourselves. I will forgive generously, believing that there is always goodness at the center of the mystery. Would gossip and slander exist at all if this was our perspective? Would war? Would genocide? In light of this conception of faith, in light of Jesus' statements about treasure, how are we supposed to define truth? Do we say that real truth is strictly in the kingdom of the heavens and therefore ultimately beyond the reach of our understanding? I don't think so. Uh, Jesus says that he is the truth. But what does that mean? One possible interpretation is that he means he is at the perfect intersection of the physical and the spiritual. At the highest peak of both faith and reason. This is why Jesus is at the center of our faith. Not only was he the perfect representation of God on earth, but as theologian Dallas Willard puts it, he was also the smartest man who ever lived. He was truth in the flesh. Explaining the origin of our word truth, again, Parker J. Palmer says, the English word truth comes from a Germanic root that also gives rise to our word troth, or betrothed, as in the ancient vow, I pledge thee my troth. With this word, one person enters a covenant with another, a pledge to engage in a mutually accountable and transforming relationship, a relationship forged of trust and faith in the face of unknowable risk. This is a critical part of who Jesus is. And this is a critical part of what we should always be aiming at. We are both created in the image of God and created as limited, finite beings. As creatures who live at the intersection of the physical and the eternal, we must hold both perspectives at once, acknowledging our limitations while trusting that the kingdom of the heavens is always present with God working within us and within the world for the good of all creation. We are not gods. We're not meant to understand it all.
but we are meant to value God's perspective more than we value our reason. That is where the treasure is. And that is where the Holy Spirit means to lead us. I'll close with another quote from Parker J. Palmer. In truthful knowing, we neither infuse the world with our subjectivity, as pre-modern knowing did, nor hold it at arm's length, manipulating it to suit our needs, as is the modern style. In truthful knowing, the knower becomes co-participant in a community of faithful relationships with other persons and creatures and things with whatever our knowledge makes known. We find truth by pledging our troth, and knowing becomes a reunion of separated beings whose primary bond is not of logic, but of love. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hands to act. And we ask that you would continually knit us together in love to lead us into places that we do not know and that you would grant us the faith to trust that it and you are good. Mm-hmm.